We want to pass on this time now for Mike, who's going to talk about probably the most technical uh, subject. So if you haven't been, um, you know, uh, if you've been a little taking a nap, now's the time to wake up and uh, think, think deeply and think hard. Uh, this is a, uh, a t more technical session, but I think it's very appropriate. It helps you to understand the framework for God's purposes, and uh, we want to appreciate Mike. So let's, uh, let's hand the time over to him. Okay. All right. So we're, this actually was originally going to be session one, so we're going backwards in, the, in your booklet and in the PowerPoint notes. So as Joe mentioned, this is a, a little different genre here that we're doing. This is a... Uh, looking at two major camps within the evangelical theological community when it comes to looking at these issues. So this is called How, How Christians Have Understood God's Purposes, uh, Dispensationalism and Covenant Theology. So <clears throat> the Bible obviously has a lot of information. As we've seen, it makes a lot of statements about Israel. When you get to the New Testament, you know, Jesus said, I will build my church. My understanding of the church would be that the churches consist of those who have believed in the Messiah who has come, who have experienced the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. So thus, they would be members of the church. But when it comes to the issues of Israel and the church and the kingdom of God, as I mentioned before, there's people like me who believe the kingdom is primarily an earthly kingdom that is still to come. There are others who believe the kingdom is a uh, spiritual reality where Jesus is you know, reigning in a millennial kingdom from heaven, and therefore the kingdom is primarily a spiritual entity. So there are a lot of issues to look at. And what we end up coming here looking at now is there are two major systems. I would, I would, and by evangelical, I'm talking about you know, people that would believe like we do that the Bible's inspired, you know, salvation's only through faith alone. You know, people that would be for the most part would be very solid when it comes to their understanding of, you know, of orthodox Christian beliefs. Uh, not everybody agrees when it comes to the issues pertaining to the future, to the rapture, to the millennium, to Israel, to the church, the nature of Jesus's millennial reign, all those sorts of things. So if you follow Bible teachers, you know, on the radio or read their books or whatever, uh, you can know that they have differences of opinion. You know, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, they're great friends. They do conferences together, but they disagree a lot when it comes to the future or when it comes to Israel and the millennium and those things. So you can uh, have people that are very united on most issues and yet have some disagreements. I think one of the issues too, will, uh, as you acknowledge these disagreements, it's also good, I think, to put it into perspective. Like I said, when it comes to you know, we're talking about eschatology, which is the study of future events. That there can be, you know, godly people can, you know, can agree, can agree and disagree, and it doesn't affect their fellowship. So, what I'm pointing out here is that, you know, when when you're coming off of the Reformation, you know, the Reformation of the 1500s, there have been two two theological camps that have tried to put the big picture storyline together in the Bible. There's covenant theology, which developed in the late 1500s and the 1600s. And then there's dispensationalism, which has a system developed in the early to mid-1800s. Now, when we talk about these systems, 
We don't want to give the impression that what these systems believe only started at these times. In other words, um, I'm a, I would hold to dispensationalism, but I wouldn't hold that everything I believe it just comes from the 1800s. <laughs> One key aspect of dispensationalism will be premillennialism, which would be the belief that Jesus comes before his kingdom. So Jesus comes bef- and then the kingdom starts. I mean, that was held in the earliest of the early of the church. So, so, so in other words, these systems, even though what we're talking about them is there, and by a system, we're talking about how they put together the full data that's in the Bible, how they try to harmonize things, uh, things like the law of God and the kingdom and Bible interpretation. So now moving on here, both systems, it's important to understand, agree on Jesus and the gospel and consist of godly and intelligent people. So usually the issue here is not intelligence or godliness. It's more of an an honest disagreement on the Bible storyline. Just so you know, like I said, my background, I was uh, Roman Catholic. I went to Roman Catholic grade school and high school. I got saved when I was age 14 and a half. Uh, Was an altar boy, all all of that good stuff. And uh, the churches that I went to initially were... Um, I guess you could consider them to be dispensational. I mean, in other words, that's kind of once I became a believer, I was listening and and following people that were dispensational. I'm not going to go into some other things that I was believing (laughs) at that particular time, but but I also was in some other areas believing some other things at that particular time that since then I've stopped believing or I've kind of shifted my views on things. So all all I'm saying is, is I've you know, as a Christian, there's been certain things that I've believed that later on as I studied scripture, I found out that wasn't, I didn't think that was really biblical, so I moved on from it. So to me, like if I really felt dispensational was unbiblical, I don't have no problem leaving it because I've done that before. So anyway, but, uh, but I, the main reason why I brought that up is I, I haven't been, I didn't grow up in a covenantal theology environment. So the, there's one sense in which I have to be honest that I don't, I did not grow up in a covenant theology environment. So what I know from it has been from my attempt to try to understand it in reading primary source materials. So I just want to give that little caveat there. So I'm trying to be fair. But, but we should celebrate this, that they agree on Jesus and the gospel, and they consist of godly and, in, and intelligent people. But both differ concerning the Bible storyline. So they get Jesus right, and they get the gospel right. They get salvation through faith alone right. They get certain essentials of prophecy, like agreeing that there's a bodily resurrection and and things like that. But both differ concerning the Bible storyline. I might even add, too, that when it comes to a fancy word, hermeneutics, which is Bible interpretation, um, they may agree on a lot of things about how to interpret the Bible, but when it comes to Bible prophecy, they usually disagree on how to interpret Bible prophecy. Uh, those who are dispensational, like myself, are more literal with prophetic passages. Those in covenant theology tend to be a little more uh, less literal, let's just call it that, with those passages. Um, and so thus, how does... How does uh, you know, Genesis 1 to 2, all, you know, the storyline all the way through Revelation 21 to 22, when it comes to the storyline, they're going to have some differences of opinion on that. Covenant theology, 
offers three covenants as the basis for understanding God's purposes. So in other words, they, they believe that there are certain covenants that must be understood in order to understand what God's doing in history. Um, and this is, by the way, this is a general statement. When you, when you get into some of the details, sometimes covenant theologians may disagree on what these are called, and some might not like one of them. So I'm not saying every covenant theologian would affirm all three of these covenants exactly as they're pictured. But for those who hold a covenant theology, they kind of see these, these covenants as important for understanding God's purposes. First of all, they would say there's a covenant of redemption which is a covenant between the members of the Trinity to save the elect or to save, uh, to save mankind before the world began. So in other words, the members of the Trinity of before time had a plan. The members of the Trinity, although equally God, would have certain roles and Jesus would come and die for the sins of the elect, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, in other words, God has, there, there's a covenant before, and this covenant is viewed as being before time. Now, those who don't believe that this should be called a covenant, they may actually agree that God had a plan. Like, I'm not a real big fan of that covenant, but I do think that God had a plan before time to save the world. I do. I don't call that this, but um, some do. There's another covenant called a covenant of works, where there's a covenant between God and Adam, who's representative of mankind. So yes, it's made with Adam, but it also extends to others because Adam represents mankind as a whole in which Adam must again it's called a covenant of works so Adam must obey or slash merit his salvation by works so in Genesis two fifteen to 17 before the fall God says hey you can eat of all the trees of the garden but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day you do you'll die so I think all of us would agree that Adam was given a test there as far as his obedience as far as his allegiance to God. Some will call that a covenant of works in the sense that uh, if Adam would have obeyed, there would have come a point where God would have considered the test to be over and he would have earned salvation, something that may, may, may have even been glorified after that particular point. Now, according to the Bible, we know that we all know that Adam sinned. So, covenant theologians believe there's also a covenant of grace which is a covenant between God and fallen mankind in which God commits to save the elect by grace through faith. So once the fall occurs, no person's ever able to merit his salvation or to obey into salvation. So therefore, God institutes salvation by grace through faith. Eventually that will you know, lead to the Messiah. You have to believe in him in order to be saved. So thus salvation by grace with the, with the covenant of grace. Now, with dispensationalism, they also posit something that's kind of like a big framework for understanding some things. Dispensationalism is kind of a fancy term, right? Um, there's a word in Greek, and it's actually used in the New Testament. Paul uses it. I think others do as well. It's called like oikonomia. You don't need to worry about that or spell it. But there's a Greek word, oikonomia, which refers to administration, there's the administration of the fullness of times. Um, dispensationalism is the, uh, has affirmed that God's purposes in history are unveiled through dispensations. In other words, God deals with his creation in different ways in different eras. 
That doesn't mean salvation changes throughout these eras, but it does mean that God works in different ways. So thus, although they may not all word it the same way, dispensationalists will say there was a dispensation of innocence which occurred for Adam and Eve from their creation to the fall. You know, they, have an ev- they didn't evidence righteousness in their life, but they were, they were innocent. They hadn't fallen yet. Then there's a dispensation of conscience after the fall to the flood where God wasn't giving direct commands and revelations to people at that time, but they had a conscience that directed them towards what was right and wrong, and they were to live by that. And then there was a dispensation of human government after the flood Uh, Once the Noah's flood took place in the very end of Genesis 8, going into Genesis 9, there's what's called the Noahic Covenant, where God seems to institute kind of a formal government structure. And he he talks about capital punishment if somebody was to kill an innocent person. Somebody sheds somebody's blood who's made in the image of God, their blood must be shed. So it actually talks about, you know, some would believe like a sort of like government at that particular time. So that would take place from the flood to Abraham. And by the way, the, the main point here, I'm, I'm not trying to get you to like memorize all these at this point. I'm just trying to let you know that these systems kind of have these frameworks for trying to understand history. So within covenant theology, you have these three covenants. Within dispensationalism, you have these dispensations or eras where um, salvation is always through faith, but God may give more revelation in certain dispensations and the people of God may have to act a little bit differently in a dispensation. The dispensation of promise would be from Abraham to Moses. That's where you have the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. The dispensation of the law is pretty easy one to understand because once Israel gets the Mosaic law, that's obviously very different, right? I mean, you have 613 commands once you hit Exodus 20 and following, that Israel's supposed to keep. Now, when you get to Jesus, there's going to be all kinds of statements in the New Testament that uh, Christ has brought an end to the law, the law is fading away. So, you know, a lot of theologians would hold we're not under the Mosaic law today. So that was, that was a unique era of time where Israel, as a theocracy, functioned under the Mosaic law. And then dispensational, some of them would say there's a dispensation of grace from Jesus' first coming through his second coming, where, you know, John talks about that. You had the law in the time of Moses, but now grace and truth in Jesus Christ. Not that grace didn't exist in the Old Testament at all, but Jesus brings the era of the church and very, you know, very, it's very explicitly understood that salvation is by grace through faith in him. And then they would say that there's a dispensation of the kingdom, which would be Jesus's millennium um, after his second coming. One of the things that I think is interesting about these ones that I mentioned is uh, I actually think for the most part, I'm pretty okay with what I'm seeing up here. I do think it's interesting though that um, usually in the list, they, they don't mention the day of the Lord as a unique dispensation. Like, like I would add that. <laughs> I, I, I would put the day of the Lord in there. Because that, is that a very unique period of time? I'd say it is. I would also add the eternal state, which is the perfect new earth conditions after the millennium. So I actually would include some that are not on there. But again, the goal here isn't to try to memorize all these or 
And, and I would even say personally as a dispensationalist, I really don't, I, although I think these issues are interesting and important, I don't think that this is really the main issue. Some do, but I, I really don't think, there's some other things that I talk about that I think will be even more important. But historically, you know, if you were studying covenant theology, you would, you would see the three covenants are important to covenant theologians. The dispens- these dispensations are important to dispensationalists. And again, they're, they're kind of ways to just try to grapple with history, what's going on. Now, what I want to do is I, I, I want to start talking what I think are the what, the, what the main issues are not and what the main issues are. The main difference, I want to start with what are not the main issues. <laughs> the, main is, the main differences between the two camps, between covenant, covenant theologians and dispensationalists, they do not relate to salvation issues. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because some who have held the covenant theology have tried to make dispensationalism, which um, I'm going to give more of a definition here shortly, but they're trying to make perhaps people who would believe like I would on these issues, they try to make dispensationalism about things that it's not really about. Now, I just told you earlier that they agree on the gospel, although some on the other side are a little hesitant on that. But I, so I don't think the issue is about the nature of the gospel, I don't think it's about Calvinism versus Arminianism, if you're familiar with that. There are dispensationalists who have been Arminian, and there's dispensationalists who have been Calvinist. So, I mean, that's not really the issue. If you're familiar with the lordship versus the non-lordship salvation, I don't want to get into that a whole lot, but that's not the issue. It's not about, you know, some people have tried to say, well, dispensationalists don't think we're under the Mosaic law, so they think you can do whatever you want. There's no law. That's not true. I be- you know, we believe that we're under the law of Christ. It's not about, you know, when you get into the trichotomy versus dichotomy debate, I won't say his name, but there's a very, very major Christian teacher who says, I don't like dispensationalism because they teach trichotomy. Trichotomy is the view that we're made up of three parts, body and soul and spirit. The dichotomy view would be is that we're made up of body and then soul and spirit are basically the same thing. So in other words, dichotomy would be is you have a material body and then an immaterial part, which, which could be called soul or spirit. Someone who would hold a trichotomy would say, you have a body and you have a soul and you have a spirit. Now, I think that's an interesting issue. I'm not saying it's not important. Most dispensationalists I know, first of all, I know some who would hold to both. I think most I know probably would hold a dichotomy. But um, a major critic who says, I don't like dispensationalism because they, they all hold a trichotomy. That's just not true. Um, the main areas involving dispensationalism is more in regard to uh, how you interpret the Old Testament and Israel. <laughs> like those are like, what do you do with Israel and how do you interpret Old Testament passages, particularly prophetic passages, you know, and also the issue of Israel and the church, how, how distinct are they or similar? Those are kind of like where the real issues are. I mean, n- not, not every theological system covers everything. Just like people who, or who hold a Reformed theology. You know, there's people who hold a Reformed theology who may disagree on whether there's a personal antichrist coming or not, or they even may disagree on the millennium. You know, there's just certain things, certain systems focus on, but other things aren't. All I'm just saying is, if you ever hear anybody saying this is, this is where the issues are, they're wrong. So here's what I think the main issues are. The role of national Israel and land promises to Israel. 
fulfillment of Old Testament promises, particularly related to Israel and the land and physical blessings. How the New Testament uses the Old Testament. The Bible storyline. Jesus' kingdom and then Israel and the church. This is where I think the real differences are. This is where you have two different camps who, who take different paths. As I told you before, I think the main issue here is how you interpret the Bible when it comes to prophecy, and then the whole issue of storyline. In other words, like, how, how does the Bible storyline unfold? So the first one, national Israel and land promises to Israel. Part of the reason why I shifted this to the last session today is because we've actually now looked at passages in the Bible talking about Israel and Israel's land and those sorts of things. So I think that's helpful. So the first one, there's a big disagreement is on Israel, national Israel and land promises to Israel. Many passages in the Old Testament speak about the importance of Israel as a nation and the land of Israel. That's, that's indisputable. If you read the Old Testament, Israel as a national entity seems to be very important in the storyline. Israel's land is important in the storyline. Physical blessings are important in the storyline. For example, Genesis 15, 18 to 21, as part of the Abrahamic covenant, God told Abram, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. <laughs> so it's may not be as perhaps as specific as it could be, but it's talking about land boundaries. Interesting, historically, even though things, times were good at the time of 1 Kings 8 to 10, this sort of boundaries have never been fulfilled in history yet. So that leads to an interesting question. Does it not matter anymore? Or in the millennium, if there is a coming millennium, will God fulfill land promises to Israel with these dimensions? Jeremiah 16, 15, we looked at this passage earlier. During a time of Israel's apostasy, the Lord says that I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. So in other words, even with disobedience, God seems to be predicting Israel would be brought and restored to their land. So what do you do with passages like that? Do you just say, well, I mean, do you say, well, they'll be fulfilled someday if they haven't been already? Or do you say, well, when Jesus comes, he brings a different kind of fulfillment and it's not really about those things anymore. They kind of evaporate in him or, or, or what do you do? There's different answers. Now, when it comes to this issue of Israel and the land, those who hold a covenant theology often hold that Israel and Israel's land are transcended by Jesus and the church. In other words, Jesus and the church bring like a different kind of fulfillment. Uh, oftentimes there's the belief that, you know, Israel and Israel's land were kind of like shadow truths that once you get to Jesus, you get to see what's really important. So kind of what was promised before doesn't, is, doesn't need to be fulfilled literally. So there's no future for Israel as a nation with a role to other nations. So this idea that I've been teaching that there needs to be a kingdom reign over the earth. Israel's going to have a role in that. They don't believe that. They, they certainly believe that there are Jewish people being saved. And some of we would even hold that in Romans eleven twenty six that when it says all Israel will be saved, some even believe that there might be a lot of Jews saved 
in the end time. But when it comes to Israel as a nation having a role to other nations, they draw the line on that. They're, they're, not, they're not seeing Israel having a role as a nation anymore. So there's no literal fulfillment of land promises to Israel. You know, they may say things like, well, the land promises have been expanded to all believers. So there's no particular promise with Israel, although everybody becomes Israel on a spiritual point and, you know, we may all live on a new earth. But there's no particular fulfillment. And therefore also, the church in Jesus is the new Israel. So there, there's the belief Jesus is the true Israelite, of which I would personally believe that too, although I don't like the implications of what they're going to do with that. And they would say, well, anybody who believes, and if he's Israel and you believe in Jesus, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you become Israel. So I don't think the Bible teaches that, but that's, that's what some would hold. Dispensationalism is holding that national, so this is the other side, point, counterpoint. Uh, dispensationalism says national Israel remains significant in God's purposes. So now national Israel right now is in a state of unbelief. So in a sense, they're not functioning (laughs) as the way God intended for them. But they're, in other words, they're still significant. Jesus will someday rule the nations and Israel will lead and serve other nations. So in other words, God will restore Israel, save Israel, and when Jesus rules the nations, Israel will have a role to those nations. They're not better than the other nations. It's not like they're saved differently, but they'll have a functional role. Kind of like what pastors and elders in a church, I mean, we don't say they're better than everybody else. They got more salvation, but they do have a leadership function that may, that may not be the same as everybody else. I mean, pastors and leaders, they, they lead in, in a certain way that you know, maybe different than what's going on with the rest of the congregation. Also, the land of Israel, according to dispensationalism, will be the headquarters for Jesus' coming earthly kingdom. If Jesus is coming to rule the world literally and rule the nations of the world, what's wrong with Israel and Jerusalem being the headquarters <laughs> for that rule? So Isaiah 2, 2 to 4 seem to talk about that, the, the role of Jerusalem with that international kingdom. I don't really, I, I should mention it here, but one of the things too that I think is important a part of this argument is that dispensationalists aren't claiming that Israel's the only nation once Jesus comes. I mean, Isaiah 19 talks about Egypt being there. There's other passages that talk about various other nations. So in other words, it's not like, okay, Israel's a nation and everybody else is sitting on a cloud in a church service or something. So in other words, there's literal nations and then Israel has a functional role to those nations. Okay, so that's the first one. Now the second issue would be fulfillment of Old Testament promises. So when you read Old Testament promises, do you say, hey, if it hasn't happened yet, it will. Or do you say, well, because of Jesus and the church, we're not going to be so literal with it anymore. That's going to be one of the big issues here. With covenant theology, the present age is the primary age of fulfillment. So in other words, this age that we're in, because of the coming of Christ, this is where most things are being fulfilled. And so there's heavy, heavy emphasis with the promises being fulfilled with the church. Yes, of course they believe in a second coming, 
But it's not like there's a lot of other stuff that has to be fulfilled with the second coming. This is the primary age of fulfillment with the first coming. Also, Old Testament promises do not have to be fulfilled literally. So in other words, uh, um, I've been called a wooden literalist because I'm thinking there's stuff that, you know, stuff concerning Israel and Israel's land. Others have too. But, but anyway, it's kind of an idea that like you're being too literal, you're being wooden literal. And, and also the belief too that Jesus brings fulfillment in his person. By the way, I think dispensationalists would agree that G- Jesus is at the center of bringing fulfillment, but I guess the issue is how does he fulfill things? Do, do, do promises kind of evaporate because he comes, or is he the one that makes, brings all things to literal fulfillment? I think it's more of the, la- more of the latter. In, in, in Matthew five seventeen to 19, Jesus said, every jot and tittle of the law needs to, needs to happen. In Luke 21, Jesus talked about the fact that everything that's been written must be fulfilled. So I think there's a disagreement on what fulfill means. Does it mean evaporate or does it mean, no, Jesus makes everything happen as it should? Okay, still on this particular issue, dispensationalism would hold in regard to Old Testament promises. Fulfillment of Old Testament promises comes over the course of Jesus' two comings. So remember, with covenant theology, there was a big emphasis on almost everything being fulfilled with Jesus' first coming and the church. Dispensationalists are saying there is a lot of things that were fulfilled with the first coming, but there's still some important things that haven't been fulfilled yet. So in other words, it's kind of, uh, there's been a lot that's been fulfilled, but there's still a lot more to come, particularly the day of the Lord, promises to Israel, the nations being saved and restored, physical blessings, all those sorts of things. So, uh, secondly, promises concerning Jesus' suffering were fulfilled at Jesus' first coming, but physical and national promises will be fulfilled at his second coming. I'd want to draw your attention to Acts 3 on this particular point. In Acts chapter 3, I actually think that this gives a really important paradigm for fulfillment. Now, this is shortly after Jesus' ascension to heaven. And Peter is speaking right in the heart of Jerusalem. Obviously, there'd be a lot of people in Jerusalem who were, knew about Christ's death. And he's speaking, according to chapter 3, verse Acts 3.12, he's speaking to the men of Israel. And then he tells them in verse 18... But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. That's a present fulfillment, right? I mean, Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant of the Lord who dies for his people, that's been fulfilled. Now he tells him in verse 19, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be Uh, wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I think times of refreshing is the kingdom. And that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. Notice that the restoration of all things. Notice that it's the restoration of all things 
about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So notice the parallel here. In verse 18, when it came to Christ's suffering, that fulfills what the prophets had predicted. But there also needs to be a coming restoration of all things because the prophets also talked about that. So in other words, some fulfillment, primarily Jesus' role as the suffering servant who dies and brings atonement and salvation, that has occurred. But when it comes to the times of refreshing, restoration of all things, which is language about the, the earthly kingdom, that still awaits the second coming. So I personally think that's a better, that's a better approach. Okay. All right. Now let's move on to the next one, the next issue. The New Testament use of the Old Testament. Now the other point we were just talking about, hey, how do you understand Old Testament promises? This is dealing with the issue of how the New Testament writers understood the Old Testament. There are about 350 quotations of the Old Testament that are in the New Testament. So in other words, the New Testament has about 350 quotations of the old. Now, in your Bible, they may be put in all caps or they may be put in bold. But usually, most Bibles will let you know when there's a quotation there. It's somewhat of an inexact science, but roughly 350. So the question is, what do you do with that? Because there's going to be a big disagreement here because covenantalists are going to think that the New Testament writers are often reinterpreting or spiritualizing or some term like that, that they're not being literal with the Old Testament, while dispensationalists as a whole are usually, I should say usually, thinking that they're being pretty literal with the Old Testament. So with this issue of New Testament use of the Old Testament, covenant theology is going to believe in the concept of New Testament priority over the Old Testament. In other words, they will, I've seen this over and over again, um, I have it very well documented in my Has the Church Replaced Israel book. They'll often say, well, how, where should we start for understanding the Old Testament? We must go to the authoritative New Testament who's telling us how to understand the Old Testament. So with, them, with this belief, the New Testament at times reinterprets, and they will use different words. I don't make it sound like everybody uses the same word, but some will use the word interpret, some will say reinterpret, some will say transcend, Some will say something else, redefine. But the New Testament at times reinterprets or transcends the meaning of Old Testament passages. So allegedly there are times where um, a passage may appear to be, you know, is used of Israel in the Old Testament. And some will say, well, it's being used in a different way of physical blessings for Israel are now said to be spiritual blessings in the church. So supposedly there's kind of like a, a redefinition or a transcending that goes on. There's even one key writer, um, I have this, if somebody wanted to see the quote, I think you have it with me, who actually says the New Testament at times spiritualizes the Old Testament. With dispensationalism, though, on this issue of the New Testament use of the Old Testament, they believe that all Bible passages must be understood in their own context and that the New Testament does not reinterpret the Old let me see if I have more on this. I, okay, I guess I'll comment on this more. So in other words, the, uh, with covenantalists, they often hold a what's called New Testament priority where the new is the lens to understand the old. 
Dispensationalists often argue for what's called passage priority, where the meaning of a passage is found in that passage wherever it's at. So in other words, the meaning of a passage, even if it's in the Old Testament, is found there. It's not found in other passages. In other words, God's revelation doesn't work like that. God doesn't like say say something in the Old Testament and then come along and say, well, I'm going to reinterpret that with what's coming in the New. So in other words, the meaning, that's what come dispensationalists are more literal with the Old Testament. They're just, they're saying, you know, if this is talking about land for Israel, we're not going to say it's spiritual blessings for the church. If it hasn't been fulfilled yet, it must be fulfilled uh, in the future. So I would like to say, I mean, with dispensationalism, it's not the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament, but the New Testament harmonizes with the Old Testament. And at times it does give new information. So in other words, if you hold this view, you're not saying that the New Testament doesn't add information. I think the very last parable of Matthew 13, with the parable of the householder, it talks about the householder brings out of his house things both old and new. So, well, what's the new? Well, I would say the fact that there's two comings of the Messiah, that's new. Like when I read the Old Testament, I don't see explicitly there's two comings of the Messiah. Well, it seems to be a truth that the New Testament is indicating that's there. So the New Testament, when it comes to the depth of the blessings that are coming to the Gentiles, that seems to, there seems to be some New Testament revelation that appears to be pretty unique in that regard. So um, anyway, the New Testament doesn't reinterpret the Old Testament. When it comes to the Bible storyline, with covenant theology, the storyline of the Old Testament is transcended by the new. So in other words, there's a, there's, a, there's a significant development. Like if you read the Old Testament, it seems to indicate national Israel is important in God's purposes. And even in disobedience and dispersion, there's all this talk about a restoration. So it seems to be when you're coming out of the Old Testament that that's a part of the Bible story. Like Israel, national Israel is important. So, usually when I'm reading covenantalists, they may not always use the same word, but at some point they'll say, with Jesus in the New Testament, there's a transcending or a redefining or a transposing where all of a sudden national Israel is not really theologically significant anymore. And again, that's usually under the rubric of, uh, well, Jesus is the true Israel and the church is Israel, so we don't need national Israel anymore. That's usually how it's worded. So I do like to think, though, that that is is like a storyline change. In other words, national Israel is important in the old, but now we find out, no, they're really not. We just find out, well, they were just a shadow and a type and just kind of an inferior thing pointing towards something that's better. So with that, the church is viewed as, as the culmination of God's purposes, so much so that there's not another important era to come where national Israel would have any significance. So the, uh, Isaiah 2 prophecy where there's international harmony among nations and all that, that's fulfilled in the church. And thus the, uh, the church is the culmination of God's purposes. I think what you'll end up seeing with dispensationalism is the church is an extremely important phase in the kingdom program, but it's, it, do, it's, it doesn't end everything. There's still an era where there's going to be a reign of, the nations are going to, as nations are going to be important after the second coming, and therefore there's a, another dimension to the, to the kingdom. And usually with covenant theology, again, there's a heavy emphasis on first coming fulfillment of all or most prophecies. So uh, 
I was even reading one person in this camp who was arguing all prophecy, and he actually put it in all caps, A-L-L in caps, all prophecy was fulfilled at the first coming. And so, now I don't think he's, he still believes in a second coming, and in actuality, there are some things that he would hold that were still needing to come. But definitely kind of that idea that the, the first coming was, was, uh, was, 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 was almost everything. Um, okay, moving on. With dispensationalism, the, you have the belief that the storyline that has begun in the Old Testament is fulfilled literally over Jesus' two comings. So in other words, there's no change in the storyline. There's a lot fulfilled with the first coming, but there's still significant things that still need to be fulfilled at the second coming, day of the Lord, restoration of Israel, international harmony among nations, those sorts of things. So uh, kind of this idea that if God promised something in the old and it hasn't happened yet, well, it will in the future. And also very significant is that national Israel remains significant in the Bible storyline. Not that national Israel is in belief and fulfilling all the promises that were given to it right now, but they don't lose their significance. Um, that uh, all Israel who will be saved is national Israel. That has implications for the kingdom that is followed, followed after that. So national, I think really when it comes down to it, like if you really, really just wanted to cut to the chase, <laughs> the two biggest differences are dispensationalists are saying, take Old Testament prophecies literally and recognize that national Israel is still significant in God's purposes. That's, those are really the, when you get down to it, those are like the two biggest things. So, and I would even add to that, that the context for national Israel's significance is that Christ is going to be ruling nations as nations. So Israel as a nation has a functional role, not a superiority of personhood role. It's not like they're better than everybody else, but they have a functional role. And thus, this is continuing on with dispensationalism on New Testament use of the old. The church of this age is important, but there's a coming reign of the Messiah over literal nations on the earth. So what we're seeing now is the church is made up of an international community that itself spreads, supposed to take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. It's also a time in which, as we do that, the nations don't like Christians, so they persecute them. (laughs) But people are being saved from the nations. But there's coming a time period where the nations of the earth will acknowledge the Messiah as nations. I keep referring to this passage, but it's finally time for me to go there. If you look at Isaiah 19, if you go to Isaiah chapter 19, you have several references once you hit verse 16 to in that day. Verse 16 says, in that day. Verse 18 says, in that day. Verse 19 says, in that day, etc. We're told in verse 18 that in that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. So it's telling us there's, the Egyptians are going to learn Hebrew. At least five cities will be. Verse 19 tells us, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. 
So Egypt, a traditional enemy of Israel, is actually going to have monuments to the God of the Bible. Okay? Verse 21, the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. So, I mean, you could talk about the restoration of Egypt, in, not just Israel, but of Egypt in Isaiah 19. Now, I want you to notice verses, 9, verses 24 to 25, because if this is properly understood, this will help with understanding the Bible's storyline. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria. Now, Egypt and Assyria are traditional enemies of Israel. I don't think this is just going to be them, but they obviously kind of represent the nations as they've traditionally opposed Israel. So they're going to be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. So it's an earthly kingdom. Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people. Now, who was called the people of God in Exodus 19, 5 and 6? Israel was called the people of God. Now we're seeing Egypt's called the people of God. Well, what's going on here? I think what we're seeing is language that was once only used of Israel is now being used of Gentiles. That doesn't make these Gentiles become Israel, but it does mean they become the people of God. So one of the things I like to tell my classes is the, the concept of Israel always has an ethnic element. It never, it, it, in other words, Gentiles never become Israel, but the concept of the people of God expands where it goes beyond believing Israel to also Gentiles. So it's interesting here that Egypt is called my people, Assyria the work of my hands, and then notice who else is here, Israel my inheritance. So as these other nations are saved and, and getting titles used of them that were once used of Israel, Israel's still around. There's no statement here that Egypt becomes Israel in that day, but it is true that Egypt becomes my people alongside Israel, who's also saved at this time. When you get to the New Testament, Gentiles in the church are going to be called the people of God. There's no doubt about that. So people are, some people are going to say, well, Israel was the people of God. Now the church is called the people of God, so guess what? The church is Israel. That's, that's not good thinking. <laughs> that's not how it works. The people of God expands, but the concept of Israel doesn't. So, anyway, much was fulfilled with Jesus' first coming, but much needs to be fulfilled in the future. Then you get to Jesus' kingdom. With covenant theology, Jesus' Davidic millennial kingdom, and again, the millennium is coming from Revelation 20, the thousand-year reign. The, the millennium is the Latin term for a thousand years. With covenant theology, there's a belief that Jesus' Davidic millennial kingdom is being fulfilled in this age. Now, I want to be fair. There are some covenantalists who are actually premillennials. They're very rare. If you guys know who Wayne Grudem is, he'd be, he's a theologian. He's, he's one exception who'd be premillennial but covenantal. But, but the vast majority are what we consider amillennial or postmillennial. Amillennial would be you know, the belief that you know, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the millennium is taking place spiritually between the two comings of Jesus. The world may be getting worse and worse, but we're still in the kingdom. Those who are postmillennial would believe that the... Uh, we're also in Jesus' millennial kingdom now, but, but the world's going to get better and better, and then once the world's Christianized, then Jesus comes again. But the, but the thing that I want to focus on now is that usually within covenant theology, you believe that you're in the millennium now. So if, you, if you're not premillennial and you want to be with the others, you have to say, I believe we're in the millennium now. And so uh, 
Anyway, I personally think that's a stretch when I'm looking at the kingdom passages of the Bible. I think there's some great things going on with the church, spiritual blessings, no doubt about it. But I'm not seeing the, the messianic kingdom being fulfilled in this age. Anyway, and also with that, Jesus is on David's throne and is ruling from David's throne. Also, the second coming of Jesus brings a culmination to Jesus' millennial reign. So in other words, his coming doesn't bring his kingdom. It ends his millennial kingdom. And then you go into the eternal state. So there's definitely a lot of kingdom now. With with covenantalists, there's a, uh, a spiritual kingdom going on now where... And then Jesus' coming brings an end to it. Oops. With dispensationalism, they believe Jesus has been exalted as Messiah at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So that's Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there is a current exaltation of Jesus as Messiah at the right hand of the Father. If you remember in Revelation 3.21, Jesus said, for those who overcome, they will sit down with him on his throne, just as he overcame and sat down with his father on his throne. So Jesus is, he's at the right hand of the father, sharing the throne of deity as the Messiah. But dispensational, most dispensational, because there's, there's actually some nuances here on this, but for the most part, Jesus is not sitting on David's throne in heaven, nor is he ruling from David's throne. He's at the right hand of the father, sharing the throne of deity, but the actual reign from David's throne is future. I would argue that I, I think this is explicitly biblical in Matthew 19.28 and Matthew 25.31. Matthew 19.28, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you'll be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That seems to be future. Matthew 25.31 to me is beyond dispute. When the Son of Man comes in glory with all of his angels, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Then the nations will be brought before him. So I actually think you have two times, Matthew 19.28 and Matthew 25.31, where Jesus tells you when he's going to sit on his throne. I mean, we don't even have to guess. He just says it, and it's in the future. So the second coming begins Jesus's millennial reign, it does not complete it. So with this scenario, you have the second coming, then the millennial kingdom. The others are saying that the, the second coming brings an end to the millennial kingdom. Okay, Israel and the church. I think this is the last frontier on this. With covenant theology, again, some of this is interlapping a little bit, I understand. Jesus is true Israel. Again, I would agree with that too. It's just I disagree with where they're going with this. Therefore, the church in Jesus is the new Israel, which I don't think that's what the Bible's saying. But anyway, it's, it's kind of the idea of uh, Israel was a, national Israel was a shadow. Jesus is the reality. And once the reality comes, you don't need the shadow anymore. Remember in the old days when they do the space shuttle and you'd have, you'd see the bottom parts dropping off into the ocean. It's kind of like, but part of it would continue. It's kind of like, you know, Israel's, the nationalism is the part that kind of just falls off the storyline. They're not significant anymore. <clears throat> so Israel transitions from a national entity to a spiritual community of believing Jews and Gentiles. 
Now, we get into the language here. The church replaces slash fulfills Israel. Thus, there's no future for national Israel. There's a lot of debate over here over the terminology. Um, It's indisputable throughout church history that many in covenant theology, and even before, have said the church replaces Israel. I mean, I I show it to you all day long in my book. (laughs) It has the church replaced Israel. Today, there's been people who've pushed back on that saying, we don't like that word replace. We think Jesus fulfills it. He doesn't replace Israel. It's all kind of a smokescreen in my opinion. The view is still the same. Basically, there's no future for national Israel because allegedly the church in Jesus becomes the new Israel. So call it whatever you want. Replace, fulfill, whatever. Because of the church, there's no future for national Israel with this particular view. With dispensationalism, the church... This is by definition of the church. The church is the new covenant community of believing Jews and Gentiles in this age. That's my my definition. The church is the new covenant community of believing Jews and Gentiles in this age. The Messiah, in Matthew chapter 3, I think verses 10 to 12, John the Baptist said, the one who is coming after him, he will baptize you with the spirit and fire. I think baptism with the Spirit means the new covenant because the heart of the new covenant is a new heart and the indwelling Holy Spirit. So I think when you become a believer, you become part of the new covenant. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's true of believing Jews and Gentiles. But Israel continues to consist of ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you look in Romans 9, verse 3, I know we looked at this earlier, but I want to emphasize something different here. Now, I, I, I mentioned earlier that in Romans 9 to 11, Paul's dealing with the developing replacement theology. In 11.1, he asked the question, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. So he's dealing with a form of replacement theology in Romans. And, but I want you to notice that as he, in the first three verses, is grieving over Israel and unbelief, he says in verse 4, and again, remember, Romans is being written in the 50s. This is 20 years after the ascension. Notice how Paul views unbelieving Israel. He says, he, well, first of all, in verse 3, he refers to them as my kinsmen according to the flesh. So he actually uses family. He obviously will use family terminology for all believers, but he does refer to ethnic Israelites as his kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Notice to whom belongs, and that's important there because he doesn't say to whom once belonged, but to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory, which is the Shekinah glory, and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises and whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ. So he still sees Israel as all those things still belonging to them. And then we, we, we talked earlier in Romans eleven twenty eight and 29, you know, or verse 29, he says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, when he says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, a lot of scholars think he's referring back to, to chapter 9, verses 3 to 5, where he talks about all those things, covenants, promises, temple service, all those things. It still belongs to them and still irrevocable. So what's important about that is Paul when he's directly addressing Israel's belief, affirms that those things still belong to them. It's not a new spiritual Israel now, as opposed to national Israel. Those things are still relevant to them. 
Now, I, I'm not, I'm not going to go. I will tomorrow. I'm going to go into the olive tree analogy of Romans 11, 17 to 24. We're also going to see that Gentiles are grafted in and are participating in a lot of those blessings, but they haven't been forfeited to national Israel either. So the church does not replace or fulfill Israel. National Israel remains theologically significant. There still is an era to come where Christ is going to rule the nations and Israel will have a role during that time. So just to kind of end here, we'll get into some questions. When it comes to perspective, the two camps agree on the gospel, but the two camps are telling different storylines particularly relating to God's purposes for the nation Israel. So I think that's the balance. In other words, we, we don't break fellowship over this issue, should, should respect each other, have some good debates. These issues are important, but we don't split over that. But on the other side, we're also trying to get the storyline right. And so it does matter. I, I will say as a general statement, I think when it comes to individually, I think when people would hold what I would consider to be the wrong view of this particular issue, I think they can be very godly and more godly than me. I mean, there's no doubt about it on an individual level that, you know, you have people who hold both sides who are very godly people. I will say that when you have many Christians as a whole adopt a position where the church is viewed as replacing Israel and Israel is not taken seriously. Historically, sometimes it's manifested itself in not so good a ways when it comes to how the church has treated Jewish people in, in, in Israel. I mean, that's just a fact. So um, let's just say when there's whole-scale rejection of God's plans for Israel, corporately, that's often meant the church is, at the very least, has a very bad testimony <laughs> To the Jewish people. That doesn't mean it's always the case, but I think historically that has happened. So I think I think the, the, the significance can be particularly in regard on a on a bigger corporate level. So anyway, I'll go ahead and uh, thanks for bearing with me through that, and I'll open it up for questions if you guys have any. Yes. Yeah, what's the motivation? Yeah. I would say, I think it's a great question. I, I would say that the, it's not perhaps so much a motivation to deny Israel immediately, but I think it's more historically, the Reformation is coming off of a time period where replacement theology and spiritualizing things concerning Israel and their promises was so dominant that I think it took a little while <laughs> for some in the Reformed community. And the Puritans did, when you get to the Puritans, they were actually being very literal with a lot. So there, there's actually a lot within the Reformed community that really started to get things right when it comes to Israel. But I think that there's, I, I think their model, I think they still were seeing things too spiritualized and it was so much a part of, 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 of the... Uh, so much a part of the thinking of that era that I think it was hard to break out of it. So I think it's, it's probably... Now, I think today, 
where you actually have other people pointing out that, look, there's another way to look at this. I think, I think some have dug their heel. I mean, clearly there's obviously the other side thinks they have passages where the New Testament's reinterpreting the old or transcending it, and so they have their core set of passages and all those sorts of things. But it's, um, I think it's largely more not so much a, a nefarious twisting, but as a going along with a model of, of spiritualization without breaking out of it. That's probably how I would view that. Did you want to follow up on that or... I see what you're saying, yeah. Like, I have plans for you, says the Lord, and yeah, right. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I would think as, as principles and things are being promised to Israel, again, the ultimate purpose is for those things to end up blessing the Gentiles. So when God says, I have plans for you and they're good, I mean, I think there's application. I mean, directly it's being made to Israel, but certainly there's going to be application for those who know God and those things. So I think we should be interested in getting the storyline right. Since God's not doing things for Israel just because it's Israel, but it's for, for the purpose of blessing all people groups. Even as he's working with Israel, the intent is for all peoples to be blessed. So I think we can be both literal and have application to us. So even like with the new covenant, like in Jeremiah 31 says, behold, I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then when you get to Hebrews 8, in a New Testament context, the writer of Hebrews seems to indicate that's applying to believers today. And again, I would just say, again, that, that the covenants are given to Israel for the purpose of extending to others. So things that are directly addressed to them still can have application to us. Yes? I think, I think as a whole it has, because uh, we, when Israel was, uh, was put back into the land in 1948, that really caught the whole world's attention. From what I understand, there were several people that were not dispensational who were, whether they were half serious or half joking, were like saying, oh, I see what they were talking about now. So there definitely was an aha, take your breath away kind of moment with 1948 when it comes to that sort of thing. And so I think there have been people who have said, look, this is, you know, we don't know for sure everything's being, but this seems to be too much of a coincidence. So I think there have been people that have been convinced by that. There's definitely people that look, look at that and still resist any significance of it. I know of people who say there's no significance to that, which is, I think is pretty brash. <laughs> so, I mean, the scripture seems to indicate that Israel needs to be brought back in unbelief for what will be happening to them in regard to their eventual salvation. We, I don't think we should ever date, set, or declare anything for sure. This side of the rapture is for sure fulfillment. But let's face it, after almost 2,000 years of not being in the land, all of a sudden they are. I mean, that's a pretty huge, pretty huge to just say, I don't think that's significant. <laughs> I, think that's, I think it's very likely significant. Yeah. Shouldn't 
that or wouldn't that fit into that parentheses period? So why are there still 10,000 acres now? What do you mean by parentheses period? I'm not sure what you mean by that. The, maybe it's more of a classical like scope or a scope builder. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, well, I would say, I, I, if, if, if you're going off of that model, maybe what they would say is that, in other words, I mean, most, even classical dispensationalists believe that Israel had to be gathered in unbelief in order for events to play out for the salvation of all Israel. So I think they probably would think that as that's playing out, I mean, it, Romans eleven twenty-five to 26 is, after the fullness of the Gentiles, all Israel will be saved. I mean, you have that statement there, but that seems to be pretty late in that period. So probably even most classical would see that if, we won't say for sure, but if God is setting the stage for that, that, that Gentiles would still be saved all the way until the end of that period. That's probably how I think that. In other words, I don't, I don't, I don't see any of them that would say, oh, because Israel's back in the land, there's no more Gentile salvation. I'm not aware of any. And nor would I see why that would have to be the case. So sometimes, um, you know, practically speaking, Christians might wonder whether or not we should be pro-Israel just yeah. as a nation. Yeah. And sometimes when they watch the news, it seems like, well, there's mm-hmm. always this stone throwing and sometimes there are some unjust things that may happen. So what is your view that <clears throat> Christians be pro-political Israel now or, or what? Well, I think... Christians should recognize what the Bible predicts about Israel, but Israel's still in a state of unbelief. So I don't believe in carte blanche, must accept everything Israel does, no matter what they do, they never do anything wrong. That's not right. I mean, in other words, I think we as Christians in the church should still be on the side of righteousness. (laughs) I personally think there's a lot of unrighteousness being leveled against them, of which we should stick up for them in a lot of areas. But it's not the sort of thing where we just say, everything's fine, I mean, God, we, we don't force that. I mean, whatever the timetable is, God's the one who brings that about. So I think we can have a healthy understanding of what the scripture says. We don't date set, but we understand that that, you know, what's going on could be very significant. And we stand for what is right. So technically, if, if Israel's being treated unjustly, we should say so. If they were to do something that's not right, we should say so. I mean, God's going to work it all out. I mean, I mean, they still are still under the times of the Gentiles in state of unbelief. So I, I don't see any, any mandate that the church must just throw everything to support everything. But on the other side, I do think that they're mistreated in a lot of ways. I just think we need to do what's right and let God figure it out. <clears throat> yeah. So it looks like you developed a six-point definition of what Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I think these points that I've just shared, I, I, it's probably not going to be a pick and choose thing. In other words, I think they're pretty much all going to, you're probably going to line all in one or all in the other. When it comes, that, that These were very strategically stated in such a way. I will say, though, that when it comes to the covenants of covenant theology, there are dispensationalists who believe in one or all of them. 
and they're still dispensational. So I don't think the covenants of covenant theology are the everything. And what's interesting is uh, covenantalists, they believe in dispensations. They may not call them what dispensationalists do, but they believe that, that before the fall is different than after the fall. There's different eras. So in that, ironically, the covenants of covenant theology aren't really the, the main issue, and believing in dispensations aren't the main issue. I think these issues that I've talked about are. But to answer your question, what was the other one about? Could, could you be too much of one or the other? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think any right view can be distorted and twisted in a way. So in other words, I think there's always the possibility to... I just think that... I, I, one thing about dispensationalism, it, it's never had a particular confession that has kind of made everybody circle the wagons. And, and in other words, like dispensationalism's history has been refining... Like when I look at earlier dispensationalism, as dispensationalism's reacting against covenant theology, I think they went too far on some things. But it's kind of, as it's kind of modified itself, I think it's kind of hit a spot that I think is pretty healthy. But I guess, yeah, I mean, I think anybody can uh, go too far or with, with things. But I, but I do think when it comes to these points that I pointed out as essential, I think you're probably going to, I don't think it's really pick and choose. Any last question for today? All right. Well, uh, I want to thank Mike. Let's give him a, a, a warm round of applause. Appreciation. Thank you. It's been a long day. Uh, Great day. He's worked really hard. So tomorrow, uh, our Sunday school class will begin promptly at 9.15. So if you're used to showing up at 9.25, 9.30, well, you'll miss the first 15 minutes and you'll have to sit back there. So I hope that you'll come early. We'll leave the tables as they are. They've been a request. If we could help just clean things up, your trash, we'll leave the hymnals out. Uh, we'll begin at 9.15. We'll end around 10.15 tomorrow. And uh, we'll see everyone tomorrow. Let me close in a word of prayer before you all go, okay? Father in heaven, we give you thanks. What a wonderful day this has been. We pray, God, that you would illumine our minds and grant to us understanding. And Father, I pray that as we study your word through the more challenging and difficult passages, we would ask ourselves what this means. And may we be desirous, Lord, to study and to be diligent so that we might handle your word correctly as it is the word of truth, your word. So God, may we be uh, gracious and uh, charitable, and we pray, God, that you would help us to be um, discerning as well. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, everyone, especially those who are guests and those who are online. So, well, Lord willing, see you all tomorrow, morning at 930.